Happy day. You've washed my sin away. Oh, happy day. Happy day. I'll never be the same. Never be the same. I'll never be the same. Oh, yeah. I'll never be the same. Thank you, Jesus, Lord. Thank you, Father. Yes, thank you, Lord, that, you, that death is beaten and you have rescued us. Thank you, God, for that. And that our sins are washed away. Thank you for your forgiveness, Father God. Lord, help us to be forgiving as you are forgiving of us. Thank you. Yes, Father. Yes, Father. Yeah, we just love you this morning. We thank you for the many blessings, Lord, that you just pour out and bestow upon us, Father God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. And during this time, after he rose from the grave, He was walking among the people, preaching the good news, being seen by thousands and hundreds, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. As we come close to this Pentecost on the 28th, prepare your hearts, meet with the Father. Meet with him. Hear what he has to say to you before the awesome, wonderful pouring out of Holy Spirit. Prepare your hearts for Pentecost. Prepare your hearts for an encounter with the Holy One. Yes, it was a happy and glorious and celebratory day when he rose from the grave. But oh, wait for the power enduring Holy Spirit. What a day, what a day. We prepare ourselves, O oh Lord.
Come, let your presence fill our praise, fill our praise. Come and let your presence fill this place. Oh, come and join in now. Come and let your presence fill our praise, fill our praise. Come and let your presence fill this place. One more time. Come and let your presence, O Lord God. Yes. Come and let your presence fill our praise, fill our praise. Oh, I love the praises of His children. Come and let your presence fill this place. Are the one we want to be. Jesus shine through all the praises that we sing for you, all for you. Are the one we want to be. Jesus shine. Come to give you highest praise, highest praise. We have come to love you in this place. We have come to give you highest praise, highest praise. We have come to love you in this place. Stretching forth your hands for you. In full worship and surrender to our Father. We are you, we are. It's all for you. Here we are, here we are. It's all for you. It's all for you. Here we are, here we are. We love you. We love you. You're the one we came here for. We love you. We love you, Lord. You're the one our hearts adore. We love you. We love you,
This is what you gave me for To partner with you To partner with you This is what we came here for And this is what you made us for To partner with you We partner with you Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. 
and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in us that same spirit and just as God raised Jesus from the dead he is giving life to our mortal bodies by the spirit that's within us the same spirit in Christ is in us for Jesus has given us everything 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 that pertains to life and godliness there's nothing left out nothing lacking nothing we need but we are filled with a measure of him who was all, who is all, and who is to come. Overflowing, overflowing, you overwhelm us, O Lord. Overflowing, overflowing, you overwhelm us, God. Overflowing, overflowing, you overwhelm us, God. Yes, overflowing, overflowing, you overwhelm us, God. Oh, the overflowing, never-ending, reckless love of God. spoke a word, you were singing over me, you've been, yeah, you've been so, so good to me, before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me, you, you have been so, so 
Shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me, there's no shadow. No shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me, no wall. No wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me, no shadow. No shadow you won't light up. Mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. No wall, no wall you won't hit down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never ending. 
Jesus. We love you, Jesus. <clears throat> I have a couple of points to make this morning, but one is a prophetic word to all of us. No word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. I woke up this morning and I was really excited about coming here to be with you guys. My heart was thrilled. There was a time when I was first born of the Spirit that I was thrilled to come together with believers all the time. I would just, my wife knows, morning, noon, night, day. And I was in the Word all the time. We're at several Bibles. And uh, before that happened, though, I've been given the Word of God as a young man through my loving grandma who was a Baptist. And if any of you are, were Baptists, you know that there's one thing that every single time you come together, you get a call, an altar call to repent and give your life to Jesus. And uh, John 3.16 becomes this stable. Well, it was a wonderful thing that went in my heart. So later I went away from the Lord, but that word was in my heart. You know, no word from God will ever fail. So that word was in my heart and uh, went into the world. And in the world, people come up and witness to us. You know, one time I remember a guy and this buddy of mine turned and said, do you believe all that stuff? And I would, he said, I don't. And I wouldn't, li I wouldn't answer him because I really did down deep in heart, my heart. Another time I had a motorcycle wreck and was in the hospital for several months with her. She was drugged down the highway. We were miraculously spared our lives. In a hospital bed, a guy was telling me all about Jesus. I was He's telling me about my, you know, you need to really get right. My grandma said, the Lord's knocking on the door, man. And so I thought about it for a while, but then I went on down the road for another five years. And uh, then one day came when I was really arrested and caught up. I was in the underworld and guilty of a lot of things. And I was before the police department that arrested me and they said, uh, the sergeant that was talking to me, I, I told him I was guilty. I was honest. I said, and I was repenting. I said, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. And he told me these words. He said, if you're telling me the truth, 
I'll do everything I can to help you, but I better never, ever see you down here again. And I knew that this was God, even though I didn't know God wasn't filled with Spirit, baptized in Spirit, nothing else, but I knew this was God speaking to me, saying, okay, buddy, I've tried to reach you time and time and time again. If you don't give your life 100% this time, your life is going to be over. I knew this was God speaking to me. I had to do business with Him 100%. And I thank God speaking to somebody like Michael today. And others, all of us, you know, this word, you know, oh, happy day. Oh, happy days. Anyway, the Lord is calling us to a hundred percent, a hundred percent, hundred percent His. We don't want no little bitty cancer in us without dealing with it because it'll kill us. We want a hundred percent. So my heart's desire has been to be among a people that are a hundred percenters that love Him. And so... I'm happy days about happy about coming here today. I think Joe and his wife Nicole has, has leaders from the top down has giving us this opportunity for me to be here speaking to you, and for you to be here and others to speak and share. I think this is really Joe's heart to see the body function as a unit, to be see the body function as a people that we can hear God through us to hear we having the mind of Christ, and so. Pete and I and Scott, we've known each other since uh, early 70s with Pete and early 80s with Scott. And so we're, we're, we're functioning, functioning a little bit as a tripod, we call it, and hearing God together as we come together in prayer and things like that. And so we're also in prayer, second point, we're in prayer for this nation of Israel to be engrafted back, engrafted into the true vine, you know, into the olive tree, the, the beautiful tree this natural olive branch to be engrafted back in because we as the wild ones have been grafted into this olive tree. And what's going to happen except when the two come together and this one new man, Christ Jesus, walks in the earth. Jesus said, it's important that I go away because when I go away, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And when my Holy Spirit comes in, wow, this new man, Jesus, is going to be a multi-membered body that's going to function as a unit. So how much more when these Jewish bloodline creation comes together into a full knowledge of Him, is we, I think that's when we're going to see the signs that Jesus said, greater works than these will you do. I think, Pete, what is it that our brother said? The weapons formed are what? What are they? They're too powerful for any one man to to operate. I think it's going to take us as a unit to function in the fullness of what God has for us. So anyway, I've been excited and happy to come together. And also, looking at some people, I want you to be willing to lay down your desires. You know, if they're good, like David's, was a good desire, right? To build a temple for the Lord. But he'd come along a prophetic man and said, no, don't do that. I want your son to do it. you got too much blood. So David was willing. We have these plans that we might think we got to go do. But I'm saying God says, no, 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 be willing. I mean, if, Jay, if you leave us, we're going to miss you. We're going to miss you. You're, going to, you're a vital part of us. But I'm not saying you're not supposed to go, but I'm just saying just be willing to do what God wants us to do. Amen? Have a willing heart to flow and whatever 
our minds are. I learned to just in all my ways to uh, submit to the Lord. In all my ways to acknowledge God. Every single day, get up and say, God, I don't want to lean to my own understanding. I want to. I don't want to go after my own desires. I want you to help me. I want you to teach me. I want you to lead me. I, this heart cry of, I want to stand before you blameless in that day. I want to be the one that fulfills your will. And God's got a beautiful, perfect, well-pleasing will for us all. You know, I want to enter into it and not miss it. thinking about the 120 that waited in the upper room. They waited holy unto Him. They believed His Word. They stayed and waited upon Him. Holy unto the Lord. the Lord was speaking to me a few minutes ago about uh, bowing our hearts, prostrating before Him, not, not physically or in the natural, but bowing our heart before Him. That's really biblical worship, by the way, when we yeah. bow down, we bow before Him as our great King and God and Master and Savior. And as I was just contemplating that, a couple things came to me that I want to share with you before we get into today's message. I was reminded of the passage, it's in 1 Peter and also in James, the exact quote, they're in both passages. And it says this, that God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. A couple things about that passage. One is God's opposed, which really means he stands against. 
He stands against the proud. So in other words, he's against the proud. He is against. He's not for. He's against. The second thing I want to point out about that passage is it doesn't say that he's opposed to the non-Christians that are proud. It just says proud. There's no qualifying whether you're a Christian or not Christian, whether he's a child or not. It just says he's opposed or stands against those that are proud. But he gives grace, which is his enabling power and his favor and so much more to those who are humble. And I was dwelling on that. And pride, we can take pride in a lot of things that is not harmful, it's not dangerous. Like we can take pride in our sports team or our accomplishments, things that we do. I love doing yard work, but... What I really enjoy is once it's over, I get back, I stand back and look at the creation, right? And say, I like that. Or I don't like that and I dive in and try to make it to where I like it. That kind of pride is, is fine. But the pride that is scripturally the God is opposed to is the pride of, it's really self-life. Where we exalt our self-life. Where we really are the king. Even though we may say we're worshiping the king. And we follow you, Lord. And it's really that line of where we can be deceived. We're exalting the self-life at the same time with our words saying... We're doing opposite. Any one of us can be deceived. That's why we not only need the Lord, we need the Holy Spirit, but we need one another. Peter got deceived, even though he walked with Jesus. Paul comes around and has to publicly rebuke him. So any one of us can be deceived. And being deceived into that self-life, that prideful place, it really begins so subtly. Actually, it begins kind of godly. Like it's a good thing. And I was contemplating on that a little bit and I'm not sure how to communicate this part of it. And I have a scripture I'd like to read. And it's Matthew 8, if you'd like to follow along. But the thought that came to me was when I enlisted into the military and then I went into basic training. So a lot of things are taught, right? I mean, you learn a lot of, a lot of stuff. 
but I, I don't know why. I don't know that I thought of it in this, this particular context before. But this phrase came to me, and that's, know your place. Know your place. So in the military, you need to know your place. When you, when you enlist in, in boot camp, you are not in authority in any way. You are told everything. When to eat, what to eat, what undergarments to wear, and how to fold them. Everything. When to go to sleep, when to wake up, when it's time to take a shower, brush your, all everything. On my right, it's everything. And those of you that have been in the military, you're, you're told everything. And I was thinking that in context of when we receive Christ, he paid the ultimate price with his life and his blood. He redeemed, he purchased us. He, he just didn't do us a favor. He literally bought us with his own blood. The, the value... You see, in society, we can say, you know, houses are so expensive right now, right? And there's reasons for that. But nothing, everything, a Bible, an iPad, microphone, it's only as valuable as somebody's worth willing to pay for it. If nobody buys microphones, nobody, the price is going to sink only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. And what, what was God willing to pay for all of us? You can't put a price on that. You see, the love of God in, in so much talk as we talk about the love of God and sing about the love of God and there's messages about the love of God and, and I love the topic of the love of God. Don't get me wrong. The Bible says, you know, John three sixteen, right? God for God so loved. The the word world there is the world word cosmos. He loved everything, all of his creation, every bit of it. And when man sinned, it affected. The curse went out and it affected all of his creation. And he so loved it that he did something. Love is a powerful force. When I had my first encounter with God, it was that encounter with a loving God that loved me in spite of my sin or what I was doing, what I had done, or what I would ever do. It's emotional. Well, God has affections for us. The Bible says nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nothing. But his love alone doesn't mean, and because we sense it, doesn't mean we're going to be with him in eternity. It doesn't even mean that he approves of our lifestyle, behavior, or attitudes. What does it mean? He loves us in spite of all of those things. And he loves us so much, he wants us to change. He wants us to become like his son. And knowing our place and alignment 
last thought. Hopefully this makes sense. Just This is kind of the stuff that just hit me this morning as we were focusing on the Lord. Knowing when it's time to serve, it's also time to be served. I don't know about you, but that's a hard one sometimes. It's a time sometimes to lead. And then there's also times to follow. It's knowing our place. And it's Matthew chapter 8, this passage came to mind. This is one of my favorites. I have lots of favorites. But it's been a favorite for a really, really long time. The first year I was born again, this one. Because Jesus makes a, an astounding statement. And an amazing miracle happens within this. And this is about the centurion. It says in verse 5, Matthew 8, when the, Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him imploring him. Does everybody know what a centurion is? He's not Israeli. He's Roman. He's a Roman soldier. Centurion being a hundred. So he had a hundred men below him that he was in charge of. But we'll see here, and you're probably all familiar with this, he knew his place. Because he was leading, but he was also following. And the centurion came to him imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Now, before we go any further, and most of us know this story pretty well, he's not blowing smoke. When the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy, he knew his place. He's not just, it's not false humility. It's not saying what you think he wants to hear. It truly is coming from a place of the heart. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. He knew his place. And I say to this one, go and he goes to another, come and he comes into my slave, do this and he does it. Now, what he didn't say is, I also obey when I'm told. Because in the military, if you don't, then you don't have authority to say what he just said. Now, verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Oh, to make Jesus marvel. Gives me chills. Thanking. About that. He's not even a Jew. He's a Roman. Set there to guard because they were under Roman rule as part of the guard of that city, Capernaum, which was Jesus' home base for ministry, by the way. 
Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Verse 10, Jesus marvels and says to those who are following, Truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. All of the great teachers of the scriptures and people, not one. He hasn't found one person in Israel with this level of faith. You see, this centurion truly had that humble heart before the Lord. He knew his place. And let me just add this, and this is what I believe. And I think I can prove that by what he said. When you have a truly humble heart and you understand your place there in humility... It becomes easier to recognize authority. This centurion recognized Jesus' authority. He said, You don't even have to be in the vicinity of my sick servant. All you have to do is say a word. Look, the servant wasn't even going to hear the word. This is all coming from the centurion, not not from Jesus. He could have said, my centurion doesn't need to see you, doesn't need to hear your word. You don't have to lay hands on him. Just speak it. And he's going to be healed. And And what does Jesus do? He marvels like, this guy's got it. He understands how this works. And as we know, the end of the story, the servant's healed. In that very moment, he's healed. Yep. Capernaum is a very small city. It's, the ruins are still there. They say that this centurion in another passage says that he actually helped build the synagogue there. And the ruins of the synagogue, the roof's gone, but I got to share a message in that little synagogue there to our team. This is a powerful message right here in this scripture. Well, Debbie has some great news. Can I put you on the spot, Debbie? Yes. Would you mind, would, would, could you, would you stand up and, and inform us, please? <laughs> Did you guys hear that? Congratulations. Congratulations. And it's Ed, right? Merle. Merle. It sounds just like Ed. (laughs) It's spelled differently, but you know. 
<laughs> it's nice to have you. Congratulations, guys. Wow. Father, we just ask you to bless them, Lord God, in this, this covenant of marriage as they go forth. Uh, Father God, fulfilling their destiny together in partnership with you. And may you be glorified in it. And may this marriage be a testimony to all that, that know them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Uh, Marion said he wasn't going to be here next week, so he asked me to preach twice as long. So it's going to be his fault. That's not exactly... <laughs> That's not exactly what he said. I kind of twisted it just slightly to my favor. Uh, if you can turn, or if you have a Bible, and having a Bible is a good thing, if you have one, turn to John um, chapter 20. So this is our fourth in um, a series here on Pentecost. And... Um, as I've mentioned, we're going very slow with this. We're looking at all kinds of aspects and uh, getting context for the, the last of the four feasts of the spring feast, which is Pentecost, which Pentecost is actually next Sunday. It is next Sunday, right? 20, yeah. Um, oh, okay. Good, good, good. So just a, a quick, uh, a couple things we talked about last week. Matter of fact, let me mention two things that I haven't mentioned yet in this series, but I've talked about it a lot. There is a law of first mention, a law of first mention. And what does that mean? Anytime something is mentioned first in Scripture, it helps to set the, the tone, the pattern, the what is this particular topic all about? Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to mention is, uh, and Jesus even mentioned this, but, but it's all through Scripture, and that's the law of two or three witnesses. Uh, let every fact be confirmed on the basis of two or three witnesses, even Scripture. Even Scripture. That's, we have taken the two or three wherever two or three are gathered. That's really is not where two or three are gathered together. Christ is there. Uh, it's, it, it is taken from this principle because the two or three that are gathered are two or three leaders gathered and Jesus was talking about specifically discipline within the body and what to do with that person that Jesus would be there to give counsel. In other words, so when those two or three witnesses to Jesus's counsel would give that counsel, it would be based on two or three. So it's that principle of two or three. Does that make sense? You can say yes, even if it doesn't. It's all right. But that, that's your one mulligan. You can't do it again the rest of the morning. We talked about baptism and what baptism means. What is the word I've been using to the, to the, for the definition of baptism? To be immersed. Immersion, um, to be immersed in. Um, and then we looked at there's different types of baptism because there's different types of immersion. Typically, Christians, when we hear baptism, we automatically think of water. Because that's what we've been taught, shown, practiced over and over and over. 
uh, more of the Pentecostal charismatic line of belief, understand there's a baptism of the, of the Holy Spirit. But there's more baptisms. Jesus even talked about it. In Matthew chapter 28, when he told us to go dis- make disciples, he said, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That those are three we are to be baptized or immersed in Father, immersed in Son, and immersed in uh, the Holy Spirit. And being immersed in them help us to become fully disciples. Yes, and completely, because Jesus said, I'm the only, uh, you know, I'm the door, the only one to the Father. Uh, But most of the church, the end game is Jesus, right? We just come to know Jesus and it's done. Um, And that's that's vitally important. But he came to show us the Father and bring us to the Father. The the Father and connection with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three. Uh, So to be fully discipled, we have to have at least some understanding. But the more we're immersed in all three, the more fully discipled we become instead of just one or, or two. And a lot of the body of Christ has left out the Holy Spirit. They really have. Um, when we receive uh, Christ Jesus and become born again, we are born into the family of God. God and Jesus is the king. God's the great judge. The Holy Spirit's the lawgiver. And so we, we, we are birthed into a royal family, which means just due to our new birth, we become royalty as a prince or a princess, meaning we now have authority. But we may not have power to function within that authority. And that's a lot of what Pentecost is about. We talked last week, John chapter 2, about Jesus's first miracle that on the third day there was a wedding and he turned what water which represents the word into wine that represents the holy spirit and it's now the word and the spirit coming together not just the word but what's happened even still today in so many christian circles it's all about the word which becomes all about knowledge and all about understanding, and you can have a ton of knowledge and a ton of understanding and never be born again. But so much of the body of Christ has equated understanding and knowledge with the born-again experience. And I think that's a huge problem because many people that are going to church, even this morning all over uh, the globe, really, are not genuinely born again. But they're filled with knowledge. None of us will be as, as smart, probably, as Satan when it comes to the knowledge that he has of God. And he's not born again. And neither are any of his demons. So knowledge, which really, you know, all the knowledge, 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 it's important. But by itself, doesn't, it doesn't equate to being born again. Does everybody understand what I'm, what I'm saying there? It could be more Gnosticism and the gaining of knowledge and wisdom. And God wants us to have knowledge. Hosea 4, 6, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. But it's encounter is what God's after. Because the born-again experience is just as dramatic as being born in the natural. And there is 
uh, illustration or the, the natural birth typifies what it's like to be born again. For instance, when a, a baby is, is conceived in the womb, it is in darkness. And it's also in a form of slavery, meaning that baby's completely dependent on somebody else. The mom. For everything it needs. Attached by that cord. And when the baby is born, it leaves the domain of darkness. And I'm not saying the womb is hell, okay? Don't misunderstand me. I'm just showing the likeness. It leaves that domain of darkness and comes out to what? A kingdom of light. It's drastic. The baby begins to see, even though it's not sure what it's seeing. Hear differently, see differently, feel differently, and will begin soon eating differently. That's how dramatic being born again is. It's very similar to that. But too often, Christians are sitting, gaining knowledge, 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 and you can think you have a relationship with the Lord. You can think you can be born again. But see, to have a new birth, there has to be encounter. You have to be up and close and personal with God. Not just getting it from this. You're very quiet. Maybe I should just talk about that the rest of the morning. So Jesus, his very first miracle, takes the water of the word representation. You know, think about this. I didn't mention this last week. But what are those, those stone water pots, those six stone water pots, what were they used for? Washing. And they have them fill up those nasty washing pots, stone pots with water, and he turns it into wine, and then he says, now dip it out. That had to be, you know, take it to the head. I wonder if the head waiter really knew if it was coming from those nasty. Anyway, Moses did what? He turned water into blood as a sign of judgment. Jesus turns water into wine. That power of transformation. The mixing of word and the spirit. John 20. I mentioned this last week, but let's look at it a little deeper this, this week, beginning in our, somewhere around the 22nd verse. John 20, 22-ish. Let's go to 19. So this is post-resurrection. How many of you know this? I think everybody in the room knows this. Everything changed when Jesus came out of the grave. Everything. everything began to change. So this is post-resurrection. The Bible says what? Jesus, after he was resurrected, he walked on the earth for 40 days. And what was he preaching and teaching? The Scripture tells us things concerning the kingdom. In Acts, it tells us that he appeared to over 500 people after, post-resurrection. Verse 19, John 
20. So this was the day he came out of the grave. It was in the evening. When it was evening on, the fir- on that day, the first day of the week. Can I just say this? There's a lot of argument in the body of Christ still today. Well, do we worship on Saturday or Sunday or whatever? And, every, you know, a lot of the Sabbath people, it's got to be Saturday. Did you know the first Christians started worshiping on Sunday and meeting on Sunday? Thank you, Dale. <laughs> Look what, and it was because of the resurrection, because it changed everything. Anyway, on the first day of the week, and the first day is not Saturday. Did I say that enough? All right, let's move on. And when the doors were shut, where the disciples were, now it doesn't say how many disciples. For fear of the Jews. So they're hiding out in a room with the door shut. Most likely it was locked. Why were they doing that? Because they were fearful. The guy they just followed for three and a half years was arrested and crucified. And they're thinking they could be next. And all of a sudden Jesus appears right in the middle. He doesn't come through the door. He just comes in. Isn't that beautiful? Not hindered by wood or stone or just appears. And the first thing he said is, where's the coffee? No, he said, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Why do you think that was important? Think about this. The way we're going, Marion, this is going to be extra long, I can tell. (laughs) You remember when Mary saw him? She didn't recognize him. She thought he was a gardener. He walked with his uh, two of his disciples to Emmaus. They didn't recognize him by sight or tone of voice. So when he shows up, Most likely, he's not recognizable by look or tone of voice. Hey, stick your hand in my side. Look. It's me. I want to make this point, and I'll try to make it a couple times through the rest of this series. This is the beginning of the radical change in the disciples' and apostles' lives. They are literally turned into different men after two main events. The encounter with the resurrected Christ and then the immersion in the Holy Spirit. And the Scripture is plain. How bold, courageous the things they said and the things they did were completely different prior to this. They are now having not an encounter with the Word, uh, the Messiah on earth, 
They're now having an encounter with the resurrected Christ. This is the same encounter every one of us needs to have in this born-again experience. And it begins to change everything. Because when you know there was a dead man buried, and now he's alive, everything he said and everything he did was validated. And it does something. It changes. He, verse 20, and when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So that's the second time he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. Okay, context. What's happening? And what is Jesus talking about? They're hiding in a room behind doors, probably locked. Jesus shows up. I'm really alive. What Mary was telling you is true. Here, I'm proving it to you. What's the next thing out of his mouth? As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. The mission This is important for what we're about to talk about. It's the context of what he's talking about. For instance, is he talking about being born again? In other words, being birthed from above. No, he's not. What he's talking about is the mission of them going forward. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. When he said this, he breathes on them. And he says this, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I mentioned this last week and I asked you to think about it. You probably forgot. It's okay. Were, when he breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit, Is this the moment the apostles or disciples, we're not even sure how many all of them were there, were born again? Or was something else happening? Now, when he said receive the Holy Spirit, he had something else to say. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Verse 24. Let me throw this in there. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So, he's in this room. It's the day he's resurrected. He shows them his scars. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. What happened immediately when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit. 
How, how do we know that? Okay, so listen, look at the words closely again. I, I mentioned this last week. It's very similar, but it's not the same as when God breathed in Adam and Adam became a living being. This is Jesus breathed on them. And Thomas wasn't there. Later in this passage, eight days later, they're all together again, and Thomas was there. And Jesus appears to them, and he said, come here, Thomas, I want you to put your hands here. But if you, and I'm just going through this faster because of time, but context. What is Jesus talking about? What's he not talking about? Because what did he say? As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. He's talking all about mission. You, to, to go on mission, you, you have to already have been born again. He's, he doesn't talk about being born again here. He doesn't talk about being birthed from above here. Something else fascinating, look at every time Jesus talked about being, everybody knows this, right? Being born again means to be born from above. Say it either way. But born again means to be born from above. That's what he was talking about in John 3 with, with Nicodemus. You have to be born from above. If you look at every time Jesus is talking about the new birth or being born again, and notice the way he phrases it. He doesn't phrase it this way. He never, unless I'm wrong, from my memory because I've researched this, he never rephrases the born-again experience by receiving the Holy Spirit. But how many churches, pastors, and ministers do? Notice context. Again, what's he talking about? As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. He's talking about the mission. This is past the born-again experience. He breathes on them to receive the Holy Spirit. My question is, what happened to them when he breathed on them? Not what we think could have happened, possibly might have happened, any message we've heard in the past. What does the Scripture say? Because that's the most important thing, and that's what we want to do is look at the, what the Scripture says. Let me just jump ahead. Nothing. The Scripture doesn't say anything happened, does it? Unless you're reading from a different translation than mine. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and then says, those that you forgive sins, they're forgiven. Those you retain, they're retained. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was one of them and, you know, without understanding a lot of nuances, I'd be scratching my head. But the scripture doesn't say anything happened. And don't forget this. Thomas was not there. That's a, a very important part. Because if it was about born again, when did Thomas get it then? 
Eight days later, Jesus shows up, but it's all about confirming he's alive and nothing about anything else, not even the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Y'all following me with this? Your mind's rolling at all? Now, don't ever believe anything I say just because I say it. Don't. Ever. You should challenge everything. Especially when I make crazy statements like I just made. Because it's not the normal. Do your own research. Research every time Jesus talked about the born-again experience. See if he ever said, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and he's never talked about being born again this way before, apparently he's not talking about being born again. And if you stay with context, he's talking about the mission. Which the mission doesn't come before the born again. It comes after. And when he says receive the Holy Spirit and he breathes on them, the scripture doesn't say anything happened. Because of what's coming. You see, sometimes it's, it's, it's prayers like this. We can pray and pray in alignment with the will of God and nothing may happen until sometime. There is, time is, is very, very important. I mean, stuff that Jesus said in the, the, the Bible's full of it, that things have been said and put in motion prophetically that has not happened yet. But what did Jesus do? He put something in motion by what he was saying and doing. But see, when we, we, are, we think, we human reason and we think too naturally and not supernaturally, we think if Jesus said it, then it happens right then. I mean, Jesus told his disciples, he said, look, don't marvel about all this temple here because it's all coming down. It didn't come down that hour, that day or that week. Forty years later, but it came down. We have to understand something. And I mean, really get it into our hearts. Words are powerful. Not any words. Holy Ghost, God-breathed words are powerful. God did not create the universe with thoughts or good intentions. Or, as we, doesn't say, in a prayer meeting, he spoke words. And it was. I don't think as Americans and even as American Christians, we understand fully the power of God-breathed words. 
What did, what, I think somebody might have said it. To, to, when God speaks, his word goes forth, accomplishing what he intends it to accomplish. It does not return void. It may not happen in that moment or manifest, but it is going to accomplish what he said. And when we, as his representatives, his ambassadors, say what he is saying, it is exactly like he said it himself. That's how powerful words are. That's right. And a word from God through my mouth or Chris's mouth or Rex's mouth. Notice I haven't mentioned a woman yet, but I didn't do it on purpose. I'm just teasing. Or if any. Uh, uh, <laughs> sometimes I'm a little too honored. Speaking is just like God said it. Yeah. So when we hear God's word or read God's word and it's proclaimed and prophesied, we can receive it and it will be manifested. Absolutely. Yep. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right. Exactly. And what's a great description of Jesus in the in the scriptures? He was the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. He embodied the word. There's another scripture in First John that says, "Whatever is born of God, not whoever, but whatever is conceived of God, will come to pass." Yes. The new age is coming. The kingdom is being manifested. The whole earth is going to be changed. Yep. Now, let me jump ahead just a little bit, just because it came to mind. The first world's, one world globalist venture was the Tower of Babel. Under the leadership of Nimrod, they built a city that became known as Babylon. The Bible talks about Babylon being rebuilt in the end days as well. And we have a Babylonian system right now. And that's trying to gain more of a foothold. So they built this great city and then they built a tower called the Tower of Babel to reach into the heavens. The ultimate of pride. We're God. We can take care of all these things. God, the scripture says God looks down. All right, just that alone says what? God's not in it. He's looking down at it. And he says something similar to this. Because they all are on one mind, they all understand one another, they're all thinking the same way. In other words, they're in unity. He makes the most astounding, one of the most astounding statements in Scripture. Nothing shall be impossible to them. God is not in it. It's just a group of men, most of the people that were, and perhaps all, that were alive then, come together and agree they're going to do something that is antichrist in nature. And God says, because of that, because they're in unity and agreement of one mind and purpose, nothing shall be impossible for them, and I'm not in it at all. I mean, think of that. 
Think of that even in context of today with this unity movement. We all have to be in unity. Unity. No, we do not. In the book of Ephesians, it says this, that we are to preserve the unity of the spirit. And then I add this, not pursue a spirit of unity. And which is so many Christians are doing this. That's what's going to that's what's leading into this one world religion. One world. We have to all be in unity. And then you get so deceived that you're going to unify with Muslims. Really? They don't serve the same God. How, how do you even begin to do that? And, and you, you start getting all this watered down and polluted and all of a sudden you're so deceived. Why? Because the scripture says in Second Thessalonians, if you're not a lover of truth. You're going to be deceived, deceived and given over. That's why truth is so very, very important, especially today, because truth is an enemy today. You speak truth and you are a target. But that doesn't mean we stop. We have to stand up and keep. St- st- so here, before it gets too late and I get on a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother trail. Let's go back to the Tower of Babel. They are all speaking the same what? Language. Communication. In agreement. Understanding. Doesn't mean they're all the same. They all had the same personality. We are in agreement here, which means to be in agreement, you have to be able to communicate, which are we, we as humans communicate mainly how? By words with one another. I mean, there's body language, all these other things too. But it's words, because words are so powerful. And what does God do that says, this is not good, nothing's going to be impossible to them? What does He do in response? He confuses their words. That's what He went after. And now there's groups of people. This group speaks this language. This group speaks that language. That group speaks this language. And then they come over together. We've got ethnicities and nations. The way God intended it to be to begin with. But my point is, words are so powerful that he came and he put his finger or spoke and divided and made many languages. Words. He changed the words. You see, right now, with this Tower of Babel 2.0 that is being created, there is a single global uh, language. It's ones and zeros. It's computer language. Ones and zeros and computer language speak, it doesn't matter what country you're from, it all communicates. Because we're headed into a technocracy. That's what the digital dollar is about and the passports is to bring us all into where we're, co- we're coming under a technocracy that the few will be able to tra- uh, uh, surveil us, know what we spend every cent on, all of these, everything, know where we're going, what we're doing, who we're communicating with. And people are just eating up this technology left and right. But it's a, it's a one-world language of ones and zeros. It's computer language. That's how they're, 
See, you have to have communication, understanding, to create the unity to function in whatever you're wanting to do. If you have a business and you can't communicate with your employees or your leadership and you're all, you're not going to accomplish much. Or, or an army. Can you see an army that just doesn't communicate? When an army is in war and their communications is down, it becomes much more difficult to function. As Christians, even as individuals, if my communication is down, like I have no communication with God, well, you already know what's going to happen when I'm left to my own devices, especially me. Okay, Acts chapter 1. Oh, boy. Does anybody have like a meatloaf that's burning in the oven? Or you got a... Yeah. Oh, you said no. And one of the most important things Jesus said there in John 17 when he was praying for unity is he said, just like you and I have. Not just a unity, not a Christian unity, not. See, to have unity, you have to unify around something. That's what creates unity. And you and, and we can do anything. We can just say, hey, guys, um. We're all going to build a house, all right? You're all good with that? We're going to build a house for this homeless vet. And, you know, I know some of you can't swing a hammer. If you can donate, pray, whatever. Uh, and everybody goes, yeah, that's great. We have a project now. We have something we're going to unify around. And we're focused. And we're praying. And we're raising money. You see what I'm saying? And God may not have anything to do with it. But it was a great idea. But Ephesians, again, Ephesians says... Preserve the unity of the Spirit, which means the Spirit, Holy Spirit, God. That's who we unify around. That's going to create the unity in the body, not anything else. But, but because there's this Spirit, and it's heavy, of, we have to have a spirit of unity. We have to unify. I've, I heard a minister even say we, we have to have a, create a spirit of unity. No. Heck no. Acts chapter 
verse, Ephesians 4, verse 3, and I'll read it out of the most holy and righteous version, the same one Jesus read. The, the same one Jesus read out of. <laughs> Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You say it's the unity of the Spirit. But that subtle difference of spirit of unity. We, we, especially today, we have to be aware of that. Okay, Acts chapter 1. We talked about uh, verses 1 through 5. Let's look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8. Now let's, let's stay with Scripture. All right? Not what we've always believed, thought, taught, heard, assumed. What did Jesus say? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come, not in you, Upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. It's the same word for martyr. Witnesses. Both here in Jerusalem. In all Judea. Samaria. And even to the remotest part of the earth. That's what Jesus was saying was a fulfillment of the Feast of Pentecost. Which happened on the exact day they were celebrating Pentecost. So what did Jesus say? You are going to receive power. Now in John 20, remember Jesus was alive for 40 days after the resurrection. He left 10 days before Pentecost. In that 40 days, he said a lot of things. He said this, what we just read. He said, Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. He also said John 20, when he walked into the room and he breathed on them to receive the Holy Spirit. So it's helpful if you take everything he was talking about within those 40 days. Now, most of us would probably agree with if there is a dying man or you are a dying man or woman and you had something to say before you left, most likely it wouldn't be about the weather or how the chiefs would do. Most likely it would be something very, very important, especially if you wanted to gather your kids and your grandkids. And you knew you were leaving and you weren't able to talk to them face to face any longer. I think we would all agree that you would talk about something pretty important. Right? Not just frivolous things. Well, Jesus wasn't dying. He already died, but he's leaving. 
And he told these guys about the Holy Spirit and the promise of the Father. And he even said it's a gift. It's a promise from the Father. It's a gift. It's better if I leave. So what are in that 40 days, the things he really talked about are highly important. We should know those things. Well, this is one of them. Because he says this just before he leaves. What does he say? He said, guys, you're going to be baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. And you're going to receive power. And then he said, right after receive power, for what? So we can go around, you know, powerful? To be my witnesses. That you would stand before kings and and enemies and testify about me. What does it say in Revelation? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That is not just their testimony and how they got born again. That is the testimony to who Jesus is and what he has done and the salvation in no other name. It's testifying of Jesus. And to testify of Jesus, you're testifying there's another king. And then you really get in trouble because now it's governmental. Governmental powers. It's what got him killed. Crucified. He wasn't crucified just because he went around saying all these wonderful things and teaching on the kingdom or doing miracles or raising the dead. He didn't get crucified for any of that. He got crucified for one thing, according to Pilate, because he put it on his placard above his cross, King of the Jews. That's why you are crucified. There is no other king but Caesar. That's motivated by Satan. That's where we're at today, too, by the way. That's where we're at. You are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you could be filled with my power because I've already given you my authority. You're going to walk in authority and power to be my witnesses across the globe. Nowhere did Jesus say just to go plant churches. That you're going to stand up for me in the marketplace. At the grocery store. At the doctor's office. In your family. And some of our families, that's the worst ground. Not worst. I shouldn't use that word. Most persecuted ground. And in every one of those mountains, in media, entertainment, as a teacher, oh boy. And remember what he said. I don't want you guys going anywhere. Don't go in there to those seven mountains. Don't try to start this group, that Bible study, this program. Don't try to raise somebody from the dead. Don't go try to cast out demons. I don't want you going anywhere and I don't want you doing anything. I paraphrased all that, but that's really what he was saying. Until you receive this. You wait 
until you are immersed with power. And then you go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. Because now you're fully equipped. That's right. He'll lead us exactly where to go, not just run out with our hair on fire. It's the power to function within the authority that he's given us. And I'm going to say something that might make some of you not want to come here. I believe that any ministry that does it any other way than being baptized in the Holy Spirit is illegitimate. I don't care what fruit is being appears. Because that's what Jesus said. I, want, I don't want you doing anything until you receive this. And as we're going to see next week, how vitally important it was that the, the, the apostles and disciples talked about this. Because this is not the only passage. Now, I'm going to back up and then I'll, I'll close. And I promise I'm not going to have a second close, even if I want to. I'm going to back up. Yeah, I'm going to back up to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. No. I want to back up a little bit because I, I made this. And actually, it's, it's, it's more forward in, in the passage. Let's just jump ahead. And I, I just want to plant something, and then we'll come back and look at it. And that's chapter um, 2. No, I'm sorry. Uh, 12, uh, verse 12 of chapter 1. They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of, called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip. Oh, and Thomas is now there. And Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all with one mind. Notice the similarity to this and the Tower of Babel. They were continually doing what? Devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Here's what I want to just put out there. Jesus never said he was going to build a church. He said he was going to build an ecclesia. Ecclesia is a government. It is the government of the kingdom of heaven on earth. What is the ecclesia, the main core? It's communication. It's prayer. Prayer is communication. It's communication with God. It's both speaking and listening. It's knowing our place. It's getting our orders so we can speak and act. We gather together. Why? So we can hear from our Father, our King, our Master, and Lord. So we can speak what He, say what He's saying, and go do what He's showing us to do. That is the core fundamental foundation of what Ecclesia is all about. What we see here is not the foundation of church. We see the foundation that's beginning with Ecclesia because they are of one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer. As they're praying, what does Peter do? He says he quotes scripture about Judas leaving and we have to replace so what is he doing? He's now talking about organization. Twelve is the number of government. We've got to, we've got to replace that twelfth apostle. 
They did it by praying. It doesn't say they heard specifically from God. I believe they did. I believe God brought that scripture to Peter to saying, you've got to set this in order. You've got to get your, your, the ecclesia structure, the governmental order set. And they did it before the Holy Spirit was poured out. So what I'm saying is, as you begin seeing this governmental structure, even even in its infancy, being put together here, they're praying, communicating, and then they're, we got to get another leader here. And how did they choose the apostle? They had two criteria. They said he had to be with us the whole time, and he had to have seen, be a witness to the resurrection. Okay? How many of them were in the upper room? 120. That's also a governmental number. Do you know today even the Israeli parliament's 120 members? God gave the people 120 years to repent in Noah's day. Moses, the leader, the governmental leader, died at 120. And the people then entered the promised land. There were 120 in the upper room and the Holy Spirit was poured out. 120 is the number of the Knesset, which is the Israeli parliament. They prayed, they took care of business, and the Holy Spirit was poured out. Next week, Acts chapter 2. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I pray that we gain understanding and revelation and everything that you're speaking to us that we would see clearly the things you're showing us. We would hear clearly the things you're speaking to us in this hour, at this time in history. That we may partner with you to fulfill your will in independence, in the surrounding cities, of, in Kansas City, the metro area, and in the state of Missouri to affect this nation. And Father, I pray for each individual that may be struggling with any kind of health issue, we speak to their body as a body. Body be whole and complete. Function the way you were designed to function. Is there anybody that needs prayer specifically for healing? Physical healing? You do? Chris? Brenda? Can you raise your hand up a little higher? So could a few of you just go, there's three here I see, hands. Could you guys just lay hands on them, even if you're right next to them. Just lay hands on them and pray over them and just bless them. And I bless the rest of you. Be blessed in Jesus' mighty name. Have a wonderful day. Just pray for them as we, uh, we depart. Thank you so much.